Good morning. I know that uh, the Brian has said it, and uh, I want to say the same thing. So glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time out. If you have any questions about who we are as a church or how to get connected, uh, please do make an effort. Uh, fill out some information or just find someone who kind of looks like they know what they're doing and, uh, and ask them. They're either pretending and can find someone who really does know something, uh, or they could help you uh, miraculously. So uh, we would love to, to serve you, to be of help to you in any way that we could. Uh, that, would be, that would be the goal. I'm grateful that you're here. Uh, one of the things that I really feel has been sort of a, a deficit uh, in my life, something I work on consistently, is I, I want to be someone who encourages, who blesses, who takes time out to say thank you. And it's really r- amazing how fast-paced life can be. And sometimes we don't get unique opportunities uh, to recognize or to say thanks or just to appreciate and encourage. And so I want to take a minute in the next, uh, in the next few here and, and, and do that. Uh, I'm going to embarrass Lynn Tipton and ask her to come up here just for a moment. Uh, many of you probably know Lynn, and if you, uh, if you don't, let me just give you the, the rundown of the biography for a moment. Uh, Lynn has been in Tallahassee for 27 years, and for 26 of those years, she has been involved with Four Oaks. Uh, she was just telling me stories about going through her things uh, and finding things from 1989, uh, where her and John Kaiser, the planting pastor, would go through a phone bu- bank and, and call people and say, do you have a church? Do you, do you have a place to worship? Would you, would you like to be a part of a church? And go door to door, those kind of things. And, uh, and I know it seems like I'm towering here. Maybe I'll just go over here. Isn't that, that's better. That's better. So the reason that I'm bringing us all up is because tomorrow Lynn is moving to Orlando. And so this is a, it's a big moment. It's a big, big deal in your life. She spent 14 years in California, 14 in Washington, D.C. And then for the last 27, she's been spinning around this vortex of Tallahassee. She got stuck in here and has, has been fruitful and loving as a friend, as a church member, as a sister in Christ. And so I just thought it would be good for us to, to pray for her, to send her off with thanks and appreciation. Uh, one of the cool things about coming here just in the last couple of years is I get to hear all these stories of the faithfulness of God, the way that he has woven this story together, the church. And so, Lynn, I just want to say thanks personally. You called people in 1989, and that's partly why I get to preach the gospel to a group of people here right now. It's an, that's an, for sure. So we're grateful. Um, she's going to take a, a job. She's been working for a long time with the Florida League of Cities, and they are transferring her, I guess. Centrally based, yeah. She'll be more central. I don't know if you knew that. Orlando's more in the central part of Florida. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so this city could no longer contain Lynn's awesomeness, and so they, uh, they needed to move her away. I know that a few of your friends are here. I wonder if you even wanted to come up. Let's just pray for Lynn as she, uh, as she goes. And... Um, We'll take a moment. Let's pray with and thank God for the faithfulness of Lynn, the way that he's uh, used her as a friend, a sister in Christ. (laughs) Father, thank you. Thank you for Lynn Tipton. I thank you for the ministry that she's had here in this place. I thank you for the friendships that are represented over the years. I thank you for every moment of time, every bit of her skill, her effort, her love, compassion, and care that she's given to make Four Oaks what it is. I thank you for the way that you've used her, her giftedness, her skills, her, her, her resources uh, to help supply the people around her. God, we are so grateful. You've loved us well through this woman. I pray that as she goes, you would bless her, encourage her. I ask that you would help her to find a sense of community, a sense of life and settledness, even in Orlando. I pray that in her work, she would find success and continued joy. 
I pray that her skills would be a blessing to the cities uh, in, in this state. Help her to do work that brings glory to you. And God, I, I pray that we'd be properly grateful as we look back over a couple of decades. What a gift she's been to us as a church. So thank you for her. God bless her as she goes. We are so grateful for Lynn. We ask that you go with her in Jesus' name. Amen. I appreciate you. Thanks. I know that uh, this is a place where people are coming in and out all the time. Um, and so there's probably been people who leave and, and, and we didn't pray and hug, hug them. Um, so I guess Lynn's just better than you, <laughs> is what I would say to that. Um, not really. I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, it just struck me as I walked up here. If you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to Ephesians chapter 1. And before we read this section, I just want to say to you that this particular sermon is going to be a bit of a mind bender. It's, uh, it's intense in some ways. It brings a, a, a series of questions with it. And uh, I want to just acknowledge that up front because if there's anything in me that teaches through a doctrine like this and reeks of arrogance or having figured it out or systematized the whole world, and I want to repent of it right up front and just say to you that one of the beautiful things, one of the beautiful things about worshiping God and having a knowledge of him is that he is completely and totally other. He is not like us. And even when he does reveal, we're going to see he's revealed some concepts, some words, some things for us to wrestle with, we do not have the whole picture. We do not know exactly how the mystery of the gospel unfolds, but that does not mean that it's not been given, these truths have not been given for our, our good, for us to wrestle with. In fact, I believe that the way that this truth, this, the doctrine of what we call election, basically the plan of God is what we're looking at, is not for our good. It's meant to encourage you, to give you confidence, to give you a hope. And so that's what I'm praying for, that I could work toward that end. I'm going to read verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, all the way down through verse 14. I just want to jump into it and note how Paul opens this letter to the Ephesians. This is verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were fir who the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let me take a moment and pray. God, you have determined that your grace would shine most clearly in Jesus Christ, that in him every blessing would be ours. And I pray that as we ponder this, as we think about what it means to be in Christ and how it is that we have been found in him, God, I pray for light. Give us insight, discernment. Help us to see things clearly. God, we need eyes to see. We're asking for help. And I pray that it would not be merely light, not just academic. We don't want to just be smarter. God, we pray for heat as well. That you would put a fire in us. That we would see these truths, we'd wrestle with them, and even in the midst of some confusion perhaps, we would see that it's all to your praise. Blessed be you, our Father. Blessed be Jesus Christ. Blessed be the Holy Spirit who seals our inheritance. I pray that that would be the condition of our hearts. God, help us to consider these things in humility. Help us to ask the right kinds of questions. To be grateful for what you've revealed. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that makes us remarkable as humans, one of the things that is fascinating about us is the ability to ask questions. To not just be a place and be there in the moment, but be able to look back and say to ourselves, why and how? How does this thing work and why does this thing work? What is going on here? Those questions have led to some of the most astounding discoveries, some of the, some of the most amazing technological progress that our world has ever seen. The things that you love right now, the things that you know, the reason you can press a button and talk face-to-face with your mom in Michigan is because at some point someone said, how does electricity work? Why does it work? Where does it come from? And one of the things that's amazing about this world is that nearly every question you ask has a series, a sort of lev- number of levels of answers. There's kind of a simple answer. C.S. Lewis made this point one time when he said, I, if you ask someone, what is a table and how does it work? There's sort of a simple answer, but nearly in every single category of question, you could say to yourself, well, how much do you want to know? How, what is a table and how does it work? Why doesn't it fall over? Why doesn't it float? How does it stay together? Where did you get the wood? How do trees grow? And by the time you get done in the first 20 minutes answering the question, what is a table? You are describing the transfer of energy from the sun to a plant to make wood. Photosynthesis is the answer to what is a table in some way. Is that not true? In some way... Gravity and how it works, the core of the earth and its mass is an answer to what is a table and how does it work, at some degree. And there is a sense, just a few moments, when we ask deep questions through Scripture, where we can, for a moment, see a little bit behind the veil. There's an answer to, how are you in Jesus Christ? How is a person saved? How does someone come to faith? And there are very good and right answers. They confess him as Lord. 
They express faith that he lived a life that we could never live, a life of perfection. That he died a death that we should have died because all are in sin. That he rose from the grave and that his resurrection life can be ours if we would trust in him. That believing these things, putting your faith in him, that the continuous practice of coming and confessing sins, that is why you're a Christian. That is what it means to be a Christian. But there's another sense that scripture gives us. If we would wrestle with it and if we would look deeply and consider that at the source of all things, the answer to everything, including why are you a Christian, is ultimately God. That underneath all things, there is a deeper and another answer, and he begins to reveal this to us. And I completely want to confess up front. I don't know exactly how all this works. And in the same way that my stuttering explanation of a table and photosynthesis would break down at a certain point, there are certain points when you could ask questions about the things we're going to talk about today, and the answers would begin to be something sort of like, well, what if? I mean, it could. I don't know. God didn't say. The Apostle Paul himself makes use of that great, wonderful theological argument, what if? This is what we are looking into today. When we say the plan of God, we are digging into Scripture and saying, what is the reason behind the reasons that you are in Jesus Christ? I made mention of it with Lynn. Why are we here, Midtown? Why does this exist? Why are we leasing this building? Why is my family living in Tallahassee? I mean that with the utmost respect. Why are we, why are we here? Right? Why are we here? Well, the answer to that is unbelievably complicated. You could honestly say we are here because in 1989, a young woman picked up the phone and started dialing numbers. This is the way that our world works. And I believe that God has given sufficient reason for us when we turn through the pages of Scripture to say, why are you in Jesus Christ? This is why. Because God determined not in any, not because of any merit in yourself, not because of something he saw in you, before the creation of the world ever was, that from all eternity past, God never started loving you. He simply loved you. He has loved you eternally. That's why you're in Jesus Christ. That's what scripture tells us. We are describing it here. This is article number five. It's called the plan of God. It should be on the back of your worship guide. You could look at it there. It'll be on the screen as well. And I'm going to read it. Again, let me just remind you. When we describe the plan of God, what does it mean to be a Christian? How are you in him? We are not invalidating all of the very good things that it means to be a Christian. In other words, you must repent, you must believe, you must confess. But that's not, all, that's not all the Bible says. This is article number five of the proposed statement of faith, the one that we are walking through this summer. We've come through the first four. This is the fifth. We believe that from all eternity, God determined in grace to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation, and to this end foreknew them and chose them. We believe that God justifies and sanctifies those who by grace have faith in Jesus, and that he will one day glorify them, all to the praise of his glorious grace. In love, God commands and implores all people to repent and believe, having set his saving love on those he has chosen and having ordained Christ to be their Redeemer." This is a lot 
This is a deep well that we are splashing around in right now. There's fewer sentences in some of the articles of faith, but in many ways, this is an unbelievably soaring level of thought to think about. I know that for many of us, as we look through this, it's going to be difficult for you to get to the place that Paul gets to. Here's the amazing thing about the Apostle Paul. He opens Ephesians chapter 1. He describes and says words like, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in verse 4. Beginning of verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 11, he has, we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And here is the astounding, amazing thing. Somehow the Apostle Paul gets from terms like predestination to like the best worship song that's ever been written. He says, predestination, and then the next phrase he's saying, to the praise of his glorious grace. Something about this doctrine, something about this thought moved Paul from confusion to full-on adoration. That's the movement of this passage. If you had to describe what is this section about, yes, it's about the, the will and the purpose of God from all eternity past, but more than that, it's about worship. Something in here moved Paul to say this is astounding and amazing. Now, I'll confess to you that this is not often the response that people have to this particular doctrine. There are people who have written books describing the heresy of this understanding of the plan of God. I have been in circles before where I felt like I was actively persecuted for even mentioning things like this. I remember hearing a pastor one time say that uh, he overheard some, uh, some people across the room pointing at him and sort of in whispering terms, like, sort of like this. And eventually what, what happened is, is this man came over and he said, uh, yeah, I just, uh, so this, this guy pointed, out, uh, pointed you out to me and we talked for a little while and I just had to come over and talk to you. I thought it was just astounding. Well, what is it? Well, this man pointed at you and said, do you see that man over there? He believes in predestination. As though this man were a Martian or an alien. I had a similar experience with a guy who became one of my best friends I met him at a barbecue dinner thing. My wife was working for the University of North Dakota in housing, and we used to, had to put on all these barbecues for people to come. And I met this guy, and he began talking about things like election and foreknowledge. And he started talking about how ridiculous it was and how, how horrible it was that there were some Christians who actually believed these things were true. And near the end of it, he said, Can you believe that? Do you even know anyone who believes those things? And I just kind of like smirked a little bit. I'm 23, and I'm like, I, uh, Yeah, me. Like, I believe those things. And then I just kind of walked away, and he laughed and came back later and said, like, that was really funny, what you said earlier. Like, you weren't serious, right? You don't actually believe any of that stuff. And I said, yeah, 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 I do. Do you want to go get some barbecue? And we didn't talk about it. We didn't go into a huge debate. But over the course of the next three years, this guy approached me carefully from the side, kind of like, I don't know if, I don't know if this is like a man with rabies this is not a popular doctrine in many circles. But at the end of the day, the only reason to believe something like this is if it's in the Bible. If it's there. We see it clearly in Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to walk through a number of scriptures that outline the doctrine of election. This idea, this teaching that there is some kind of choice that the ultimate reason behind all of us being in Christ is God. 
If you wanted to define what election is, one helpful definition comes from a guy named Wayne Grudem. He's written a very accessible systematic theology. It's a book that even if you don't like doctrine and theology, everyone should have on their shelf. You'll have a question one day from your grandchildren. What about angels and where do they come from? And then you can go and take 10 minutes and read Grudem and you can wow them as though you were smart. This is a definition from Grudem. He says this, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. That is one definition. It's been described in a million different ways. The Bible uses a bunch of different words, and we are going to see that as we walk through it. One of the first places I want to look is to show that from the beginning of the testimony of Scripture, this idea of God choosing to set his love on people, not because of anything in them, has been the basis of him having a people at all. Why? Well, because last week we saw that all are condemned in sin, that none are righteous, none seek after God. There is not a human being on the earth whom God could go around and say, unbelievable, I'm really impressed with you. I cannot believe the level of your wisdom and maturity and righteousness. I was not going to love you before, but now that I see your resume, I love you. It's never been that way from the beginning, even with Israel. He simply chose and loved them because he desired them to be his people. This is what Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses reminds the people of this very fact. This is one of the uses in the Old Testament. We see election in reference not only to Abraham, but then to the nation that comes from him. It says this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Remember, the term holiness means set apart. There's some act of choosing right in that word. You're holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Listen to verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And, now I want you to know there's an and here. So the first part of that is a reason, according to the writer of the Bible. Here's a reason, because the Lord loves you. And God in himself is reason enough. Because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. This is one of numerous illustrations throughout the Old Testament. When God looks at Israel and says to them, stop thinking it was your goodness and your rightness and your awesomeness that made me love you. Why was Israel God's people, his nation, set apart? One of the reasons that the writer gives, because the Lord loved them. And God is in and of himself reason enough. There is a sense in which this entire doctrine that we're dealing with today is sort of the godness of God. You know how sometimes as a parent, my, my in-laws, uh, my wife's oldest sister is in the process of fostering to adopt right now. They took on three brothers, 12, 9, and 7. And they've not had any kids at all up to this point. 
We spent time with them a week and a half, and it's been just a beautiful thing to see them dive into parenting. And they go and they parent, and we overhear it, and they come back, and then they like debrief every moment of it. What do you think we should have done with that? Do you think he had enough time with the we? Was he being rude, or should they have, <laughs> right? And at a certain point, I just I said, I, I said, listen, you need to be as fair as you possibly can, and you go through this. But I started to think back on my parenting, and I just started to laugh and said, like, but you know what? One of the prerogatives of being parents is you just have to decide And you know what's enough sometimes? Because you said so. Like I actually used because you said so. Because someone has to decide and the complexities and the nuance of boys fighting over video games and how long they've been there and whether or not they can use this certain character in Street Fighter or something, right? Is like it's beyond the judicial understanding of the Supreme Court. It really is. We could be there for seven hours, and I don't know exactly what it is. At the end of the day, someone just decides, and the prerogative of the parent is to say, just because. Because. I said, that's how it's going to work, because. God, in and of himself, has prerogative to set his love on people that he desires. That's partly what we're wrestling with, and that's what he did with Israel. The Lord loved you. Why Abram? We don't know. But Israel struggled with the pride of believing it was because of them, and they get smacked down on that all the time. So, as a nation, they were chosen. As a nation, God had prerogative in in gathering them to himself as a people. But we also see it's not just in nations, but also in individuals that God at times steps in and says, I have a preordained purpose for your life. It's not just nations, it's also individuals. We see that in the life of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, very, very clearly and simply, he says this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, one might ask, doesn't this restrict Jeremiah's career choices a little bit? Doesn't it sort of seem like bold and a little bit presumptuous of God that Jeremiah would have wanted to be a prophet even? Does the Bible even ever think like that or talk like that? No. He has prerogative, not only over nations, but over individuals. He says, Jeremiah, before I even thought of who you were, I knew you. This kind of knowledge in the Bible is not just head knowledge. Knowledge is relationship. It's not, it's not Facebook friendship. It's real-life friendship. That's how the word knowledge in the Bible is. I knew you, he says. I had an intimate knowledge of you. The New Testament even uses this language of knowledge to basically as a, as a synonym for salvation. When you came to know God, or rather be known by God. That's what Paul says. Jeremiah, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I often thought of Whitney Houston, when I read verses like this. And I know that sounds crazy. When I was about, I don't know, 17 or 18, I can't remember exactly when it was. Maybe I was younger than that. Whitney Houston sang the national anthem, I think, at a Super Bowl. Anybody with me? And she just absolutely destroyed the national anthem. It was just amazing. Like, it was just the, it was the drop the mic moment of all drop the mic moments. Like, she might have just, might have, she could have just, like, levitated off the field. It was astounding. And I remember at the time thinking, this woman didn't have any choice in life. She had to do this. She had a voice. She had to be a singer, period. 
She just was going to be a singer, just like she has a voice like that. I remember thinking if you were like, uh, if you were born into the royal family, for instance, who's the guy that just had a kid? Some of you are offended, William or Charles or something. One of the guys, right? <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm out of here. If you do not, if you do not know the royal family, I'm out. Uh, one of those guys who just had a baby, like, I mean, honestly, talking with your friends in high school, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? Well, I have to be king, but uh, I don't know. I like art, right? <laughs> Thought about working at Starbucks for a while. I mean, this is, there is an, an ordained, appointed end, even for individuals in Scripture, and we see it all the time. And so for many of us, to wrestle with this idea that God would have electing kind of love is, is really sort of, it's, we have an aversion to it. And yet, if you sit down and think about it, the story of the Bible does not work unless God, at times, when he wants, can intervene even in the deepest recesses of the souls of individual people. He does this, obviously, with Jeremiah. He does this with King Saul. He anoints David. He does this with John the Baptist. He gives John the Baptist the Holy Spirit in the womb. No one taught John the Baptist the Romans road. He had the Holy Spirit anointed in the womb. The Apostle Paul, that is not a normal conversion experience, right? The story of God's plan does not work unless he has prerogative to step into the recesses of individual souls and say, my will will be accomplished. I've determined to love a people through Jesus Christ and this will happen. That's the story of the Bible, those are a couple of Old Testament uses. I want to show you some of the New Testament use of this kind of language. The reason I'm bringing this up is to show you that this concept and these words are in the Bible. They're Bible words. You don't have to, I don't believe, at least not this morning, come to the exact construction and understanding that maybe the statement of faith mentions right here, or maybe that I would have. But what I want to assert to you is that where God has revealed himself and used words like this, we have to wrestle with them. You cannot just say, under the category of the word predestination, I have no definition. I've just left that one alone. It's blank. If God is revealed, it's for our good, and we have to say, what do these things mean? This is Mark chapter 13. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus himself is speaking about the end of all time, the end of things. He makes a very similar speech, and you can find exactly similar language in Matthew chapter 24. This is a point where the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the kind of gospels that basically tell a story more or less chronologically, you'll see a lot of the same kind of events happening. This is one of those. Mark chapter 13, these are the words of Jesus describing why something was going to take place or not take place. Jesus is unveiling for us a little bit of the question, how does a table work? Well, how deep do you want to go? Why do things happen? And Jesus is saying, how deep do you want to go? This is what he says in verse 20. If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus uses the word elect twice and then qualifies and says what he means by that word for the sake of the elect whom he chose. 
So this word elect and this idea of God choosing people is basically synonymous in the Bible. Jesus himself defines it for us, what he means by this word. You see the same kind of confidence in Jesus when he describes his purpose on the earth, why he came to the earth. He came to the earth because God had set his love on people that he wanted to redeem for himself. This is John chapter 6, starting in verse 35. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 35, Jesus describes his mission on the earth as receiving something that the Father has already accomplished. The Father desires and in some sense owns a people for his own possession, and Jesus has come to redeem them. This is what he says in John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Listen to verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Who will come to him? All that the Father gives him will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Do you remember the beginning of Ephesians 1? In him, before the foundation of the world, you were in Christ. Jesus comes in time to the world and he says, yes, all that was given me way back then, before the world was ever created, I will not lose a single one. He says, I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The question is, who will look on the Son and believe in him? And Jesus clarifies, starting in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Old Testament describes nations and individuals with this concept of God's choosing. Jesus himself uses these words. He's open about them. He says, there is something going on behind my mission here on the earth that gives me confidence to walk in it. It's not just Jesus, though. We see it as well in the book of Acts. I taught through this a couple of months ago. This is Acts chapter 13, verse 48. The context is there is preaching going on. Paul is preaching to a crowd. So there's hundreds probably of people hearing the gospel. There is gospel fruit that takes place. People actually respond and believe. They do what Jesus just said in John 6. They confess him. They confess Jesus. So out of the hundreds, people confess. There's fruit. There's reason to rejoice. And then verse 48, Luke describes why this took place. Again, why were people saved? Because they confessed Jesus. Why does a table work? Because it's standing on legs. That's a real answer. But the other answer that's very real is this, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I remember reading this at a time when this particular kind of thinking, all the way up through uh, the entire time I was a missionary, up until my early 20s, when people would describe things like this, I was, I was actively opposed, agitated, annoyed by this kind of thinking. And I remember at different times, writing in a little journal and, and reading the Bible and then writing in a journal, I would come to verses like this and I would just be annoyed. I would not want to write anything in my journal. I'd just be like, no, the Bible does not say that. Stop it. I would read it over and over again and I would say to myself, it seems like it says, and as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. Yeah, that's what, as many as believed. 
And then I would go back and I'd read it again. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The order that Luke gives, the reasoning that he gives, is the belief is a response to this unbelievably gracious and kind and loving call of God from before the foundation of the world. That God's grace comes first. And belief is, a, is an inevitable and unbelievable fruit of God's love of us in Christ. That's the answer. So, in this whole crowd of hundreds of people, and Paul preaches, when Luke looks back on this time, probably writing, maybe even a decade later, he's writing about what took place. He doesn't only say, right before that, it says they were glorifying the word of the Lord. They were confessing Jesus. That's a reason that they were saved, because they confessed Jesus. Yes, but he also sees beneath the veil, he sees further down. In some sense, he begins describing gravity in response to the table. He says, as many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. It's not just Acts. It's also the Apostle Paul speaking frequently about these kinds of things. One of the most clear is in Romans chapter 9. This is Romans chapter 9, 14 to 18. We don't have time to go through all of the complexity of Romans 9. This is a particularly difficult chapter for many. And I completely confess to you that there are sections of this chapter that should probably only be handled by silence and wonder. And to answer all that this contains, we just, we simply don't know. There needs to be humility in reference to it, but there are also things that are so clear. Why are you in Christ? This is starting in verse 14 of Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It. It depends. People, Jacob, Esau, Israel, the other nations, Paul, a different Pharisee, their response to God, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You see the difficulty in these verses? We're getting very, very close to what I would just call the unbelievably astounding, mouth-shutting godness of God. God loves you eternally. If you would confess your sins and receive Jesus Christ, he would call you friend. He would adopt you as a son or a daughter with an intimate relationship, a knowledge that is full of mercy and grace. All those things are true. But we cannot let the blessings of the gospel blind us to the fact that God is still God. He is a sovereign Lord in the strictest sense of the word. That what he wills, when he has mercy, people receive mercy. There's other sections, of course, where Paul says similar kinds of things. 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel, By the power of God, who did what? Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, 
not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Who saved us? God saved us. Who called us? God called us. Why? Not because of our works. Why? Because of his own purpose and grace. The reason that you've been called to Jesus Christ is wrapped up in God's purpose and his grace. And when did he give you this grace? He gave it to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. These are amazing, amazing passages of Scripture. The last place I just want to show you, the Bible uses these kinds of words. And we need to say to ourselves, well, then what do they mean? 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. So we've seen now Moses writing in Deuteronomy. We've seen the book of Jeremiah being written. We've seen Jesus himself. We've seen the Apostle Paul. And here's Peter. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Verse 2, how are they elect exiles? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. These words are all over the Bible. We cannot get away from them. So just for a moment, I want to walk through some of the objections to the way that we have described. This is what we think the Bible is teaching about these kinds of things. Here are some of the objections. Some people would say something like this. God chose, but he chose according to a kind of foreknowledge. In other words, what he knew ahead of time about the people is what moved him, and that made the difference. So God was there before time existed, looking down the corridor of time. He sees people standing along it. He looks down and he sees the heart and the decisions and the choices and the way that a person is going to be. And then God moves in love to love those who would love him. In other words, it's based on foreknowledge. And this makes sense to us because this is how we do things. I just watched the NBA draft with my kids this week. Maybe some of you tuned into that unbelievable exhibit. So I I watched the NBA draft. I was a little bit interested. I grew up sort of a a pseudo T-Wolves fan. Not really. The Bulls were always the team of choice. But I was close to Minnesota, and so I watched them a little bit. They had the number one pick. And in addition to watching the NBA draft, I sat there and watched, oh, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour of Draft Express pre-draft videos on workouts and interviews with all of the people who were drafted. That's how, this is how, I'm deep down the rabbit hole of nerddom in NBA. And the way that people get drafted is based on foreknowledge. I would hope so, right? There's no GM out there who says, here's what you should do. Just give me a guy no one's heard of, even you. Call someone in Italy right now. Tell them to name players on your team until you've never heard of the guy. That's who we want. Choose him based on just no knowledge, right? We know that, of course, all choice happens based on as much as you know, as much as you can see. And so they have scouts that go to games for years. They talk to their mailman's grandma and says, what did your son ever tell you about this person who lived at this address? Were they mean? Were they nice? Did they steal the mail? All of these kinds of questions, as much foreknowledge as they can possibly get. And that's the way that people sort of think about the way this happens. And that could be the case, except for the fact that we've read a couple of different times explicitly that people have been chosen according to foreknowledge, not because of works, not because of human will or exertion. It's almost as if the Bible anticipates that particular understanding and says, no, 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 I want you to know, not because of anything in the person. 
There's a kind of foreknowledge, something that happens because you've seen down the corridor of time. I used to tell my middle school kids when I was doing student ministry, that's kind of like a Biff Cannon kind of foreknowledge. You know the story, right? In Back to the Future, Biff like gets in the time machine and he goes and he gets the sports almanac. And then when they go to the future later, he becomes this unbelievably rich man. Why? Because he found a way to see down the corridor of time and then he acted in accordance with what he saw was going to happen. Some people think that's how God has foreknowledge. That's not the way Bible describes foreknowledge. Instead, the Bible describes foreknowledge more like professional wrestling. When I was a kid, I was terrified about what was going to happen in the wrestling matches. WWF was like the big thing. I would get the magazines. I was so terrified that Hulk Hogan was going to have to fight Ultimate Warrior because they were my favorites. And it's like someone has to lose. Now my whole life's shattered. This is going to be horrible. But my guess is, is that Vince McMahon or whoever's in charge of this particular organization is not nervous watching the matches. Why is he not watching the match? Why is he not nervous? Does he have a sports almanac? Does he say to the friend next to him, don't worry about it. I went into the future. I saw what was going to happen. I know he's going to choose to suplex. This guy's going to body slam. That one's going to work. This one's not. It's over. I put a bet on it. It's fine. No, 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 no. He's not nervous because he has foreknowledge of a different kind. He wrote the history of the event. He wrote the events that are taking place in here. He says, no, 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 I'm not nervous. You know why? Because yesterday when I scripted this out, I told Hulk Hogan to do the thing where he shakes his finger at 27 minutes in. And then he's going to win and the crowd's going to go crazy. There's a sense in which what Paul is saying to us in Romans 9, what Ephesians is unveiling, is that God has a confidence, not of someone who says, boy, I hope this sports almanac sort of worked out for me. No, he has a confidence of saying, I am sovereignly in control of all things, and what I will will come to pass. That's the kind of foreknowledge the Bible shows us. Another objection that is to the doctrine, and this isn't an objection that can be answered, it's just one that's very real. Someone might say, well then, isn't this unfair? Isn't it just kind of unfair? That's what Romans 9 said. Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice? And to that, I would just say, I do think that the question, why not everyone, is an unsolvable or an unresolved question before God. I don't want to call it a problem. I think that begets close to accusation of God. I don't want to say, God, this is a problem. Because if God can knock a Pharisee, a persecuting, zealous Pharisee, like Saul to the ground and blind him and say, you're my chosen instrument, then I can imagine evangelistic methods that would be more effective than us preaching the foolishness of a resurrection. And yet, this is what God has given us. And we know that people will not respond to the gospel and that tragically people will die apart from Jesus Christ. And so the answer, the question, why not everyone, is there no matter which theological system you bring up. And I don't know how to answer it. I don't think Paul answers it directly. He doesn't dare go there in Romans chapter 9. It is an unresolved question. I don't want to call it a problem. I think that gets close to saying God made mistakes and that he owes us an explanation. I don't know how it works. One of the ways that we can describe this is that the question of isn't this unjust or isn't this not fair 
simply means we have to go back to last week again and again and again and say, what is fair? What do we deserve? The reason you can ask the question, isn't it not fair, is because you maybe have not wrestled with Article 4, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That no one deserves anything from God. Fairness has been thrown out of the equation the moment God determines not to give people their just punishment, but instead to offer mercy through Jesus Christ. That's one of the ways that we can wrestle with, isn't not fair. Some people may say, well, doesn't this just make us robots? Aren't we just robots? There's no, it's not about human will, not about exertion. I would say to you that you need to remember that God's choice of you does not negate, just in the same way that saying it's wood on top of legs does not negate an understanding of how a table works, you must confess. You really do confess. You really do believe. You really do need to hear the gospel and put your faith in Jesus Christ. No one can opt out of these things. It's not either or. It's not, oh, well, I guess God just elected from all eternity past and so now we don't do anything. No, because God has as a source of his love for you, his electing, his electing love, his grace, his will, then we must and will respond. And your response is real. No one gets to fake their way through a response to Jesus. Somehow, some way, you really respond in love to God. It's not a robotic response. Many people have wrestled with how this could actually be so, But again, at the end of the day, I do not want to preach something that makes perfect sense to me. I want to preach what I think the Bible says. And that is how these things go. How does this work? How can you both really believe and really be held accountable for your sins and really repent and really have faith and at the same time know that the source of all things is God? I don't know exactly how that works, but I know that the Bible teaches it and it teaches it as a comfort and a help to us. There's other questions that could be brought up in this, and we should have conversations about them. Well, what about evangelism? There's a book that I read. That was one of the major sticking points for me. I could not come to this place on this doctrine because I cared about the lost. I go to bed at night, and I just think to myself, like, there's no reason to preach. There's just no reason to tell anyone because God has all figured out. A book that really helped me is called Forgotten Spurgeon by Ian Murray. Spurgeon talks about the fact that this understanding was what motivated him to preach. He believed that because God loved people from before the world began, that he could preach the gospel and people would come. Otherwise, he said he would have despaired of preaching a single sermon in his entire life. If we pray for people to be saved, if I preach the gospel and tell people, here's what you need to do, confess that you are not your own God, admit that you've been wrong your whole life, place your faith in Jesus Christ who you cannot see and cannot touch, who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, and in this God will meet you and you will be a new creation. This, is, this sounds like craziness. If it were up to me to simply winsomely, persuasively convince you to do these things, I would pack it in and go sell ice cream cones on the beach. There's just no reason to. But if I believe that here in this city, in this place, that God has has set his love on people from eternity past, and that through the method of us in all of the foolishness of preaching the gospel, that he will call them himself, then tomorrow I can have confidence to go and preach. 
That's just one of the glories of this doctrine. I tried to set out for you, this is what it says in the Bible. I wanted to mention a few of the objections. If you have more, please bring them up. Let me just end with a few of the glories, I think, of what this teaching does for us. The Bible describes it not... Do you notice this, that when Paul writes in Ephesians, he's not ashamed of these things? He's exalting in them. He doesn't hide them. This is not the kind of thinking that's only at like level 38 in the Masonic temple. You know, like the joke is like secret societies. It's like you don't find out the weird stuff until you get so far in, right? Paul writes this in like opening letters to the Ephesians. And he doesn't hide it. He exalts in it. He says all this should be to the praise of his glorious grace. A few of the things I think that this does for us, the reason that this doctrine is good and right, one is it breeds and continues to breed humility. Humility. You will be tempted again and again and again and again to live in a, in a condescending, self-righteous kind of way. You will look at people around you who if you think are sinning more than they should, who just don't get it, who will not respond to Jesus the way you want them to respond. And at the end of the day, you'll go to bed at night and you'll think to yourself, I figured it out. I don't know why they can't. I'm smarter than them, I guess. You know, I always just did have a clear conscience. You know, I had a softer heart. I really did. My mom always said I was a good, I was a really good kid. I guess I just, I don't know. There came a point when I needed to confess, when I wrestled with these doctrines, I know this might sound crazy to you, how, how much this touched my soul. I remember there was a particular day, I was talking to someone about their friend who they were concerned about their soul, and it just struck me in the middle of this conversation, God's loved me. God loved me from eternity past. I don't need to, I don't need to toil anymore. This isn't about me. I'm not, I'm not whole, keeping up appearances I'm not a son who's earning the love of his father. And in the midst of this conversation, this person didn't know it. I didn't like, didn't go emo on them immediately. But I walked back to my dorm. I, pray, I just, I skipped. I began to weep and just say to God, like, I, you, you love me. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. There's a freedom, not only a humility, but a freedom. I went back to my room and I began to pray. I got on my face before God and I said to him, God, forgive me for ever thinking that I was doing you a favor by loving you. Deep down in the recesses of my soul, I got a little bit of pride out of the fact that God must look down at the earth and he must be just kind of exasperated with all these people who don't love him. But he was proud of me. He was proud of me that one day I could go and I could say like, God, I, I had it. I, you know, I got you, God. And I got on my face before God and I repented. I say, God, anything good in me has always been you. It's always been you. I'm free because you've loved me. You're not impressed by my love of you. This is a gift from you. And these are the kinds of things that this doctrine breeds. There's a confidence of fruit. You can preach like Paul because of this doctrine. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, how could he endure all of the persecution that he went through? 2 Timothy chapter 2 says this, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. One of the glories of this doctrine is because God has loved you from before time began, he will hold you and complete his work in you. You know, the Father will never stop loving you because he never began. There was not a point in time in 1979 where God hated you and was against you and all of a sudden started loving you. That in Jesus Christ, from before the foundation of the earth, 
the world, the earl. That was an earth-world combo. Before the earth was set in motion, God loved you in Jesus Christ. And this should give you confidence, because if you're anything like me, I am a faithless, doubting, sinful, selfish person. Tomorrow, I would have no hope if all of my salvation rested on my ability to keep it together, to hold it together tomorrow. I would despair of this entire thing. It's why Paul can write to the Philippian church, I'm confident of this. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He gives us confidence that God is going to sanctify us. Ephesians 1 says he chose us not for pride, but that we would be holy and blameless before him. Here's the last reason I love this particular teaching and doctrine. I think it's good and right for us to have in our doctrinal statement a statement that basically leaves us without any excuse but to give glory to God. At the end of the day, this is a completely God-oriented description of faith. And I want to lead with it. I don't want to get there at the end. I don't want to surprise someone 40 years in. Like, I know you thought this was you the whole time, but by the way, God chose you and loved you before the foundation of the world. I want God to have first place in all of our descriptions of these things. It's impossible to not give God glory when you read what he has done for us. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined you for adoption as sons and daughters. And my prayer is that it does for us in our hearts what it did for Paul, that he would say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you can't get here, let me just say at the end, if you can't get here, if you read this and you're like, I just, I just don't know, then I would encourage you, the thing that really started to work in my heart in my life, I began to just say, here's the deal. I don't want to systematize. I don't want to hear any books. I, don't, I just want to start reading the Bible and say, God, I want to see this if it's here. And it started to show up everywhere for me. These words, I could not live anymore not defining what these words meant. I want to say to you as well, if you can't get here, and this particular construction is like, this makes no sense to me. I still have objections and they're really difficult. I want to say again and again and again, this is not a litmus test for belonging. You are a brother and sister in Christ and we love you. We're grateful that you're a part of the church. We want you to wrestle with these things, but by no means do you need to be a theologian of the highest order and agree in every single word with us. I would commend it to you because I think it's for your good, but I want you to know we love you and these are difficult, difficult questions. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for uh, your word, even for the difficult parts. I pray that you'd help us to be wise and discerning in the way that we handle these doctrines. And God, as much as I want to be accurate in the way that we handle the word of truth, 